This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Spotless, a new series from the Esquire Network. A sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dark dramas. And tune into the Spotless series premiere, November 14th at 10, 9 central on Esquire Network. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that yeah. no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll talk about diversity on television and Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang's new Netflix show, Master of None. I'm Raj. I'm a Bollywood producer. I'm looking for the most delicious thing on the planet. That's all coming up. But first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646 504 7673. It feels so old school. <laughs> so, as Please usual. Please make our hotlines bling. <laughs> uh, as usual, we're here with Vulture TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And we've also got two special guests with us Vulture editor Alex Jung. Hi. Hey, Alex. And uh, culture writer and master of none recapper for Vulture, Malika Rao. Hi, Gazelle. Hey, Malls. So, we wanted to talk about diversity on TV in this episode because we're going to be talking more in depth about Aziz Ansari's new show, Master of None. And this show has raised a lot of discussion about how it dresses, ra addresses race and representation and also the actors who star on the show. It's a very racially diverse group. But just to start more broadly, this has been kind of a big year in terms of at least the discussion of race on television. We've seen a lot of people of color heading TV shows like we have Jane the Virgin, Fresh Off the Boat, Blackish. But what has been less talked about is the writers' rooms and kind of what's going on behind the scenes. And just to kick us off, I wanted to share a quote from Glenn Mazzara, who used to run The Walking Dead. He said, I once had two Korean Americans on staff, and I was actually asked by a network executive if I had an Asian fetish. These things sound ridiculous when you hear them, but this is not 15 years ago. That's a couple years ago. So There can't be two. There can't be two. That's, <laughs> that's a fetish. It's like Highlander. <laughs> and, I mean, this is something that Aziz and Alan address in one particular episode that we'll talk about in more depth later. But what do you guys think about, you know, do you, do you feel like you see this reflected on TV in terms of how minorities get talked about? 
the the lack of diversity yeah. in, in writers' rooms. I think it's evident on a lot of like middle brow procedural shows mm-hmm. where they need a like they go into an ethnic neighborhood, like you know Law and Order or CSI or something, and the the tropes are always the same. <laughs> and the slang is from 1996. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Like I was even talking to Kelvin Yu, who plays um, his friend Brian in Master of None, and he was talking about how when he was first getting gigs as an actor, he sort of would first play the nerd, and then he would play the jilted, angry husband who would defend his wife or his sister's honor. And and you you just get the sense that, like, this is clearly not something written by a person of color, but it's written by probably a very well-meaning white person who wants to create diversity or include these narratives in the story, right. but they sort of end up doing it in this kind of, you know... Clunky. Right. Weird. Yeah, I mean, my sense is if you look at Indians on TV, that episode, my sense is that it's not Aziz talking about some past reality, but it's actually what he's experienced. I mean, he's he's said that. He said that Netflix was sort of the one way he could create a role for himself that was not accented or um, emasculated. And there's there is the well-meaning TV executive, and there is this sort of desire for diversity that's kind of warped, I think, and and that's what you see. One of the shows that I absolutely adore right now is Blackish, and one of the reasons I like it so much is that it seems to have skipped a generation. Like, it's not a show that is of this moment. It seems like it's a show from about 10 years down the road when a show like that is no big deal. It pretty aggressively addresses a lot of issues head on. It does. Yeah. and But the, the thing that blows my mind is it, it does it in a way that assumes that everyone in the audience, regardless of race or ethnicity, knows exactly what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, it invites you into the familiarity of it. Like, don't you hate it when? And then they right. make a joke about kinky versus straight hair. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm a white man and I have no hair. So I have no reference. <laughs> Mm-hmm. point for any of that, but I'm right. laughing as if I know what they're talking about. Right. And there's a kind of a genius to, to that kind of comedy. Right. To, to the assumption, yeah. Right. It's about like who you're orienting yourself towards. Mm-hmm. And if you orient yourself towards an audience that is quote-unquote mainstream that doesn't understand jokes and has to explain things, then it, it, feel, it creates a very different tenor, I think, to the content. For me, the, the Indians on TV episode was completely took my breath away. I want to try it again, but this time... We need you to do an accent. You mean like an Indian accent? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'd rather not. I just feel kind of weird doing that voice. Is that okay? You know, Ben Kingsley did an accent in Gandhi, and he won the Oscar for it, so... But he didn't win the Oscar just for doing the accent. I mean, it wasn't an Oscar for Best Indian Accent. It's something I've written about quite a bit, and I've talked to a lot of Indian actors who've experienced this, but it's always been so serious the way we've talked about uh-huh. it. And I think to see it mined for comedy was so, so satisfying because it did bring in other people who might not necessarily feel, you know, deeply connected to the problem or, or are targeted by the problem. They could laugh at it and they could experience it. And yes. I, that was really yes. powerful to me. Also, that intro was just brilliant. The way it sort of cut everything together was incredibly damning. And it was useful to watch that and to sort of set that up and, like, give you a really quick primer and then just move on to the actual story. It really emphasizes how how much of an impression these things do make when when you only have those things representing you out there. Like, we were talking about before the podcast, this episode of Fresh Off the Boat this last week that talks about 
16 Candles. That's the reference in this episode. The ghost. The ghost of Asian America. Yeah. And like those first impressions are so powerful. In the Persian community, it's not without my daughter, which was like Mm. so, uh, so deeply hurt so many Iranians. And then it was Shahs of Sunset, which is like another. Well, you have to allow for things like like if you're not a white, straight male, you have to allow for things and you have to look around things. And that's something that to the degree that it's possible, I try to be aware of when I'm writing about TV shows. But most people don't have to deal with that. And a lot of times when I'm Looking at a show that presents that kind of issue for me as a viewer, I think of this conversation I had, God, it was 25 years ago, practically. It was the anniversary of the re-release of Casablanca, and it played in Dallas, and I did a local radio show with the host, Sam Baker, who's African-American, and we were bonding over our love of Casablanca, and he said he absolutely adored that film, and the one thing that always nagged at him was that Sam and Rick are best friends in that movie, and the love between them feels real. It really feels like they've traveled around the world and mm-hmm. gotten adventures together, but he calls him Mr. Rick, hmm. and, he, and, and, right. and he calls him Sam. Mm-hmm. And so there's an automatic, like an ingrained power imbalance. And, he, and, and we were talking about this, and like, even when they're by themselves... He calls him Mr. Rick. Who is, whose benefit is that for? And it's for the benefit of the white audience. Like, in reality, if they were by themselves, they would be calling each other Rick and Sam. Mm-hmm. Like, regardless of what other things were encrusted on them socially, but they can't do that because of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. I was watching Fantasia with a friend in college, and which I loved as a child and I continue to love as an adult. But I was really horrified by the scene where mushrooms come to life as Asian people. <laughs> I, was, I, I wondered if that was going to be. I suddenly saw how formative that was in certain ways, just for me, visual, you know, as a visual and, and how many kids across the country that might have been their first visual of an Asian person, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think in a lot of ways we talk about art imitating life, but the thing about representation is Life can imitate art in a lot of ways when you see things Mm -hmm. and you think that that's normal. Coming up, we'll talk about one of the worst offenders. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing... But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So Two Broke Girls is a show that's been on network TV for a little while now. It continues to do really well in the ratings, and it has... One Asian character, Han Lee. Han Lee, yes. Han Lee. And he is constantly asexualized. Max is 45 minutes late, and she better not say she had a prostate exam, because I'm not falling for that again. Relax. She's just down the street at Deke's place. You know how it is when you first start sleeping with somebody and you can't keep your hands off each other? Yeah, just take my word for it. 
that's it. I am marching over there and putting my foot down with Max. No one has sex on my clock. Well, maybe your clock's not big enough. That's it. No more free jello. I wanted to talk a little bit about Asian Americans and how they're represented, which we've been talking about. But this asexualization is so common on so many shows. And I think what has been different this year, which like talking about diversity on TV in 2015, is we've seen some examples that have not been that have not asexualized Asian males, right. one of which is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, I was going to say. Josh yeah. Chan. Josh Chan. And he's Dreamboat. not just, what I love about that, I love is the specificity of that yes. character. Yes, that he's like a he's, bro. He's a bro. He's yeah. a bro. He's a surf bro, yeah. yeah he's a yes. SoCal bro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, and Who happens to be. Right. <laughs> Who has a white analog as well, white Josh. Right, right. It's not that different from Josh. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, Good point. But, but I do love the specificity of the fact that I have definitely met Josh Chan. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. That's what's lovely is that when Asians get to be regular and mediocre and, you know, not right. the top student, that's like when we're finally getting into equality territory. There's tons of jobs. There's, go to California. Go to Southern well, go to Hawaii. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've never seen that on TV before. Me that's, neither. That's the thing. It's crazy. It's crazy to see Johnny it. Tsunami, I will say. Disney <laughs> Channel was ahead Disney of the game. Channel. Johnny Tsunami a was great. a heartthrob. But, like, for instance, even on Two Broke Girls, there was some initial criticism to Han Lee's character, and then so they brought in for one episode, like, one hunky Asian IT guy who one of the characters hooks up with. This is where the writer's room problem comes in. I think what you're seeing there is like people reflecting their own reality and they very well may not have any concept that there is like an Asian man out there who might be a, you know, a crush for them. Or, right. You know, and, and so they just, I don't know, it trot, well, they trot out what feels like a token right. gesture. I mean, they did it as like a mea culpa, essentially, right? right? But right. it doesn't actually change anything structurally within mm-hmm. the show in well, terms this, of the this, narrative. This is the thing that I've, I've been kind of railing about for years, which is there's true equality for casting is only going to be achieved when there's absolute freedom to cast actors who are not white as screw-ups, eccentrics, villains, unpleasant people. And not have any fear that someone's going to write them a letter and saying you're you're misrepresenting this group. You wrote this piece last week about casting against type, and you mentioned Bokeem Woodbine on Fargo. Yeah, he's a perfect example of that. Well, he is, and that's a kind of role where I was stunned to see him in that part for a variety of reasons. The first of which is, even if this were a show that were set in L.A. or New York, probably they would have cast like a loquacious Italian or or Irish American actor in that. Part. They wouldn't have cast him. And if they had cast an African-American actor, they would have made him they would have modeled him on Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, probably, because that's what most unimaginative filmmakers would do. Mm-hmm. And instead, they gave, they made him this incredible one of a kind character. And and he is a philosopher. He's like a philosopher. And he seems to have more intellectual curiosity about the world than anybody else on that show. And um, Bokeem Woodbine said in this Paley Center panel that I moderated he talked about that part. It was my favorite part of the whole discussion was he talked about how when he got the part, first he was stunned that he was even asked to read for the part. He couldn't believe it. And then when he got the part, they sent him the script for the pilot in the mail. And he said he, he couldn't even read it for the first few days. He just sat there and stared at the cover page that said Fargo. He was like, I am Bokeen Woodbine, and someone sent me a script for Fargo, which I am going to be in. Wow. Like he amazing. couldn't – he was, he was awesome. so – and the gratitude – 
in his voice was um, touching, but also a little bit sad in a way, like yeah. the idea that he could he still seemed like he couldn't believe it. There's a feedback loop as well for immigrant communities. So, you know, I'm Indian American and the pressure is to become a doctor. And it always struck me as so ironic that these actors and actresses, these Indian actors and actresses who had struck out, done something completely different, are so often cast as doctors. <laughs> Parminder Nagra, Mindy. You can't um, escape. You, no matter what, even if you're a black sheep, you're a doctor, black sheep. <laughs> so, you know, and I think the feedback loop is that you don't sort of imagine yourself being bad and being subversive. And, you know, you don't get to see the, the, the um, visualization of that, the sort of fantasy of that play out. And so as a kid, it was definitely ingrained in us that white kids get to do that and you don't. But then you also have the you have the flip side of that, which is the Apus, the kind of lower the, the poor immigrants. The poor immigrants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that gets that gets reflected a lot too. The guy on Unloving Color has twelve jobs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Going back to the idea of asexualization, Malika, I think you were saying you often get the most attractive minority actors who end up being cast in shows because the most attractive people of any race are the ones who are usually cast. Yet, they are always the ones who are unable to get the girl. Raj from The Big Bang Theory being one example of this. Prime, prime example. <laughs> there was also a character on Outsourced who I don't know who the actor was, but very handsome guy who was, you know, morbidly shy around women. And you know that in their real life, like there's this amazing <laughs> cognitive dissonance that they're they're these studs, you know. And I think you were saying Kelvin Yu, right? Um, I mean, Kelvin Yu's first role was playing Freddie Gong in Ryan Murphy's show Popular, and he plays a totally bullied Asian nerd in the show. Mm-hmm. And on Master of None, he's this like super hot babe who like gets all the girls and sends winky text messages and it's chill you know yeah which feels more real (laughs) that's 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 an that's just such an old arc you know and it's funny to see different different races and ethnicities go through it because the model for that is Sidney Poitier Mm -hmm. and Sidney Poitier was a great pioneering movie star but it's fascinating to see how much of his talent is invested in making these basically uninteresting characters watchable, like through sheer charisma. Because throughout, really, the late 50s and early 60s, he was often cast as the embodiment of all positive values against which no racist white man could stand, <laughs> really. And, and, and it wasn't until the 70s when he kind of fell out of favor that he started to play more interesting parts where he would play eccentrics and cranky people and, and weirdos, and often in films that he directed himself, which I think is also important. Hmm. You know, because he, I guess because he got to take control of the narrative. He got his own Netflix show. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's exactly right. The Netflix show phenomenon is a fascinating one because Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu, I don't know how long this is going to last. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like a magic window has opened and people are able to take risks that, provided that the budgets are reasonable, they can, they can kind of do whatever they want within reason, like within you know, 10 episodes, 12 episodes or whatever and see how it goes. And what um, Aziz Ansari is doing on this show is it reminded me a lot of Louie. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. particularly that pilot, which Absolutely. honestly is kind of the same plot as one of my favorite <laughs> Louis episodes, where he has to babysit a monstrous brat. Right. But Great but even the, the even the aesthetic of it is is very much like that. Which of course, you know, the aesthetic of Louis is the aesthetic of like a mid '90s independent film that probably had an overwhelmingly white cast. We were talking about this a few years back when Orange Is the New Black first 
premiered. And the discussion then was you had to have a white person for people to care about the rest of the cast. But what I think people are so struck by with Aziz's show is that you don't even, like, you have four main characters and only one of them is white. Yeah, I think, again, the, the, the Indians on TV episode it was such a beautifully layered episode to me because his point is so simple. It's the executive is saying there can't be two. On this episode that we're watching, there are two Indians. Actually, three. There are actually three. There are three there buddies. Are three yes. buddies. That's right. Yeah. Three buddies, all of which are Indian, all of whom are Indian. There's in the show itself. There's two Asians, right, leading the show, and um, and his point, what he says, to the executive is just simply, let's just try it. Let's just try it and see. And right. I feel like that's what the episode is is asking us to do, too, and it succeeds. Well, it's funny because, he, it, like, throughout the show, he sets up trios, right? So even when he, he first sees the email, he's talking about it with Brian and Denise, mm. both of right. whom are people of color, and they're three buddies, right, talking about what's going on in their lives. <laughs> and then he talks about it again with um, his friend Ravi and Anoush, Who's like doing burpees in the background? <laughs> Just Love. a character, right? Absolutely. I was like, you more know, burpees. You know what was amazing about that scene too is like he's talking to Ravi about like. You know, I wish it was just like we we could have a we could have roles where you you're not just the like token minority who's cut to between scenes, but they cut to the guy <laughs> doing burpees yes, every now right. and then. Yeah. So it's good, brilliant. Right. Yeah, it is. Right. The way the show constantly sort of is aware and flips these things mm. is just so smart. Like even even when he's on the set of The Sickening, and <laughs> The Sickening, really it's it's like a thirty a thirty rock worthy title. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's yeah. Great. but like even in that, H. John Benjamin sort of plays what I sort of recognize as like the magical Negro character. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Yes. Yes. And then it's Colin Salmon who plays the sort of white eccentric. Uh huh. Yes. Like is super into these like domino shows. Uh huh. Right. And so like it it was these sort of subtle moves that he would make that that if you were paying attention you could see that he was playing with tropes. And and, and what's what's interesting is. I don't know that anyone's noticing it, which is what's like so, so right. successful right. about it. Well, that's right. that's that's the thing that makes it great. Right. I mean, that's that's right. what makes this period in this particular area this 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 part of TV is so extraordinary is that increasingly you don't notice. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, the fact like we've gone from a situation where you could describe a show as a black show or a Hispanic show or an Asian show to a show that happens to be black or a show that happens to be Asian, which is to say, there's cultural specificity to it, but it's not a it's not a teachable exer- it's not a teachable moment. It's not a learning exercise. It's not the main point of it is not to be an ambassador to the increasingly shrinking white majority in this country, and I keep being reminded of this great uh, review that Roger Ebert wrote. Of, I believe it was Spike Lee's School Days where he said that – and he was talking about that but also She's Got a Habit and about Spike Lee generally. But he said that what make, made Spike Lee so important in the 80s was that he was the first major African-American filmmaker to break through to the mainstream who was seen to be speaking first and foremost to African-Americans and not to a hypothetical white audience. Like he wasn't using mm-hmm. the African-American characters as an intermediary to talk to white people. It was more like the the difference between – traditional jazz or swing and bebop, which is they always said bebop, the difference was they let you listen. They were doing their own thing and white people were welcome to come and listen if they wanted to, but that wasn't the point of doing it. Mm-hmm. Like you had permission to be there and they were glad if you, you know, enjoyed yourself, but it wasn't for you. 
And this is like the feeling that Blackish gives you. Right? Yeah, I That's think so. Similar. I think so. And even to a degree, even though the head writer is a white guy, Empire, mm-hmm. I think also. Like, I, I love the fact that they, they make no bones about the fact that this is basically Dallas, right. but with a black cast mm-hmm. and set in the world of uh, the the record industry or what's left of it. And the main character is J.R., <laughs> you right. know, J.R. With a, with a death sentence. Coming up, a mortifying story from Matt Zoller Seitz. But first, <laughs> why should this week be any different than any other? <laughs> first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Playing out against a backdrop of Gene's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Gene, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th at 10, 9 central on Esquire Network. Take it away, Matt. Okay, so (laughs) when the Chris Rock show was on HBO, his talk show, there were several shows on the air at the same time. I think there were at least three that had uh, African-American men at the center of them. And I was assigned a story on whether or not there was a different perspective on humor that came from having a black person in charge of these shows. And that's really a very nice way of putting it. But basically it was like, wow, isn't it unusual that we have three shows with black people in the in creative control and in the lead in front of the camera? It really wasn't a developed pitch beyond that. And I, I think I must have known what a kind of mortifyingly backhandedly racist idea this was for a story <laughs> because I didn't tell any of the people who I was going to interview for the story, what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I just said I was interviewing them. Mm-hmm. And Chris Rock, so I got to interview Chris Rock at HBO headquarters. He had a little office there, and he was so excited to be interviewed wow. by me for this sh- this article I was doing. And it eventually dawned on him that I was talking about him in relation to these other two shows. And I can't even remember what they were at the time. But, but he finally, once he pieced it together, his face fell. Mm-hmm. And he said, what is this article about? And I told him what it was about. And he said, so let me get this straight. You're grouping me with these two other guys because all three of us are black. And I had I was not able to say anything to him except yes. <laughs> and he said, he said, what the fuck kind of story is this? And I said, I said, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the idea is. I was hoping to make something good out of it. And he said, look, I'm not going to tell you what kind of story to write, and I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. I'm just going to tell you that this is very depressing for me, like as hard as I've worked and as far as I've come to have a reporter come here and loop me in with two other guys just because they're black and so am I. We talked for a little while more. I tried to salvage the interview. I don't think I ever actually did a piece out of it. But we talked about his favorite films, and he was talking about the need to tell stories where the lead character was telling a story that he could relate to that was written by somebody like him. And the only way he felt he could do that was by writing and directing his own material. And the example he gave was Woody Allen, who was a hero to him. And he said, he said, what? He said, there have been no great romantic comedies in the last few years with African-American leads. And I said, sure, there have. And he said, name one. And I said, Love Jones. And he said, what is Love Jones about? And I said, Love Jones is about two super smart 
good-looking characters who can't be together because they both have too much pride or something like that. And he said, that's not a story. He said, now what's the story of Annie Hall? And I said, it's a... It's a two smart, creative people get together. He's a slightly older than her. He serves as his mentor as well as her lover. But at a certain point, she surpasses him and has nothing more to learn from him, and they can't be together anymore. And he said, now that's a story. <laughs> and, of course, years later, he made Take Five, <laughs> mm-hmm. which kind of feels like that a little bit. But I'll never forget going out to – walking out of the HBO headquarters with him. And he got into a car. He was leaving to go home. And, uh, and I said, well, have a nice night. And he was hanging his head, and he said, "He said, I'm so fucking depressed right now." Oh. And he got in his car and shut the door. Oh my God. Chris Rock, yeah. Chris Rock, if you're listening to this, I was an idiot, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, this raises an interesting question, right? Yeah. And in terms of criticism and analysis of mm-hmm. when is it useful to group people together mm-hmm. and use that as a sort of point of analysis yeah, or I mean, departure. I don't know about you guys, but like whenever my parents bring up another Iranian who is successful, <laughs> I get really annoyed. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be comparing myself to other people who are of the same race as me. I want to just do my own thing. Yeah, it's got it so hard. It's yeah. really it's really mm-hmm. tough because you don't want to seem like you're reducing anybody or right. any work mm-hmm. of art. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I, I have this policy when I write reviews of any show, like, I don't like to mention, I even hate gendered pronouns. Like, I, I, I wish that I didn't even have to mention that a character is, you know, male or female, <laughs> or I don't like to mention the race of a character unless there's some compelling reason why I don't say, like, his best, his African-American best friend, Dave, or something. Like, I don't want to say that mm-hmm. right. because I feel like I'm part of the problem if I do that. Yet there are times where if you're writing about blackish and you don't talk about race, then you seem like you're an idiot. Right. You know, like you have to because of the kind of show that it is. It's but inherent. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what the answer is. I think, is. to me, the issue is that there's there should be choice. And I think when you look at Aziz in particular, he didn't used to talk about race. And I, I'm we're going to be running an interview with Ravi Patel where he talks about meeting Aziz for the first time. And Aziz would sort of distance himself from from being different. Ravi Patel, for those who don't know, is the actor in the Indians on TV episode who who does do the accent, but then later decides not to. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and Ravi makes a distinction between blue-collar Indian actors who have to do an accent to get a job right. and the sort of prestige actors who don't have to. His point is, you know, it's all well and good when things are going well. And then you don't really talk about these things because they don't affect you and it's easier to distance yourself and you don't want to be lumped in, you know, with the blue collar guys. But when it's hard, I think that's when people start to to talk about the ingrained racism. It's not racism, but it's it's (laughs) I don't know what the word is for it. But there are there are hurdles, and there are there are reasons why it's harder. Some things are harder, and um, well, and also there's also what you might call the Shylock rule, which is you know as a Jewish actor you might not be comfortable playing Shylock, but on the other hand it's Shylock. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I've heard variations on this from from various actors over the years, including Joe Montagna, who, when The Sopranos was on the air, I interviewed him for another show that he was on, and he said that he was offered one of the major parts on The Sopranos and turned it down because it was, it was defamatory towards Italian Americans. He hmm. believed, and I said, "Yeah, but you play Fat Tony on The Simpsons," <laughs> and his answer was, "But it's The Simpsons." Mm-hmm. But it's Sopranos, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I liked about. Master of None, there's this little moment in, um, 
I think it's episode nine, which is focused on the relationship. Like it, it's like a year it's in the relationship. Morning? Is it, yeah. Yeah. That's and a great episode. It's a great episode just on its own. And then there's one moment where uh, Noelle Wells' character, Rachel, starts cleaning the floor, like clean, fake cleaning and puts on an Asian accent. And Aziz Dev, his character, is like, well, that's really racist, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like you see people do those accents in so many shows all the time. But it took that – it's just that little acknowledgement of it that actually deepens the comedy and makes it better, you mm-hmm. know? It just – Absolutely. It just – like, all, it's not that hard, you know? It's the not day that hard. I watched that show, someone did that accent. I was out at dinner, and someone <laughs> imitated a woman. They were calling a Chinese restaurant, and they were like, stupid fucking Chinese lady. And then imitated her accent, and I was like, oh, wow, this is a, this is a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, I was watching You're the Worst the other day, and, like, that's a show I like, but... Lindsay's character is like I was walking down the street and this weird Asian guy came up to me and like I don't even remember what she said but it was like it was like was it necessary no but like and part of the defense is always going to be well her character is racist right and And that's just part and ingrained of her but the problem narratively is that you have no one to push back yeah and it's always no one to sort of clap back against that it's it's always always, in service of the white character and it just sort of well, you also there. have to establish. You also have to establish that it is the character who is racist, right? And that their point of view, if not, you don't have to necessarily say this person is wrong and a bigot, but you have to at least give some indication that the show does not necessarily endorse this right. viewpoint. That it's well, a character trait. Well, like this they walk with a lamp or they like to wear pink. Racist. It's such a it's such a loaded term, and this is part of why people don't feel comfortable calling things like that out because it's using racist as an adjective versus as a noun. You may say something racist. It doesn't mean you are a racist. What's so elegant about the Aziz, that moment, is that she, it's not like she's a villain and she's doing something that maybe she just never thought about what she was doing and he sort of gently pushes back and I think that's appropriate. Right. It's not like, you know, I, I don't know. She yeah. doesn't need to be vilified for right. No, that. totally. To what Matt was saying earlier, like, we see this on... I'm going to just be Margaret Standin right now because this is something she has talked about on Ryan Murphy shows where you have ironic racism. And on Scream Queens most mm-hmm. recently, you have the main character, Chanel, and she's constantly racist to the people around her. But it's in this ironic mm-hmm. it's in this ironic way. And, like, it's supposed to be okay because she's the villain, but she's also the protagonist of the show. <laughs> so you also kind of – you also like her, you know? So how how – effective or necessary is that kind of like blatant racism coming from her or like Jeremy Piven on Entourage mm-hmm. exactly exactly like it gets it's into sexy, murky territory mm-hmm. like these characters are still sexy mm-hmm. in their meanness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what happens when you don't have characters who can sort of stand up to that if if you right. just sort of in some sense glorify it then you are just kind of into it which that's fine um, but I guess, like, I think that's what's useful or instructive about having actual diverse right. casts. Well, I mean, Alex, you wrote a piece on why Key and Peele is so good at this. Can you talk a little bit about the oh, way yeah. they approach? I forgot about that. Piece. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I mean, the way they yeah. approach rage jokes. Right. So. I mean, I mean, for I, I think Key and Peele was super smart about where the power resided in their characters and whether or not they were sort of either punching up against something uh, or uh, working within a system of white supremacy or 
just being the butt of the joke. Right. And I love the example of um, you have this one sketch where they're walking past each other and they're both on their cell phones and they're both speaking normally. But then as they approach each other, they see that the other is black. So they go into like their black voice. Right. And it's like (laughs) what you said in your piece, like like no identity defines you like that is that is not who you are. And like what happens in all these shows is it becomes like when when you make when you put on these accents and stuff like it's kind of assumed that that's who that person is but what Kim Peele does is they take it a level further where they're like that's just an affect it's not who we are really it's just it's just something that we do right (laughs) there's no sense of anything authentic Mm -hmm. right with Kim Peele I think they that that's what was so brilliant about it and why it was so necessary for our time was the fact that there is no one thing, right? There is no black identity. It's not monolithic. And they were good at inhabiting so many different characters that they sort of, in a sense, disintegrated that idea. That was a great piece. And I had thought about writing a piece like that, but I ultimately thought that what I would rather contribute to it is an appreciation of them as film as filmmakers, mm. as filmmakers and as performers. Because I'm always afraid when we talk about these issues and God, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out, but I'm always afraid that when we talk about these issues of representation, as important as they are, that we don't forget the craft aspect of it. Right. Because that is ultimately what, you know, what would Aziz Ansari like to hear most of all? Would it, you know, the way he's exploring his own culture in a way that is revolutionary and has never been seen before? I'm sure he's very happy, but I bet he'd much rather hear, boy, that was really a fucking well-written, well-directed episode of that show. Right. You know, and yeah. like, I just hope we don't lose track of that. And I don't mean us in this room. I just mean everybody who does this. Right. And also, I do think it's important to remember, too, that like maybe those things aren't necessarily separate either. And no, I know absolutely. it's hard in criticism to sort of it's easier to isolate these things and write about them so that they're good headlines or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, like for me, the craft isn't separate from the representation or the narrative or any of these things. Oh, no, certainly You're not. absolutely right. Yeah, I just I rail, a tendency. I, I rail about this a lot. But yeah. like one of the things that distresses me a lot in culture coverage, you know, not necessarily where we work, because I think we do a better <laughs> job of it than some, but there's an entire cultural factory devoted yes. to treating art as if it's just fodder for political editorials. Yes. And I feel like that's an insult to artists. It's yep. an, it devalues what artists do. And the political content, the cultural content of what they're doing is a very important part of it. But it's not It's not like the art is the plate on which the food is served. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. For anything to work, it has to be done well. And I think like if you look at Louis, he's created a representation of the divorced life, the divorced state <laughs> that I think is exceptional and beautiful and poignant. And honest. And he's he's he I mean, that's we don't talk about that. We don't define him as a divorced comedian. No, we don't. (laughs) In fact, I think before he was divorced, he wasn't quite as funny, actually. I think you can't necessarily separate these states of being. I think Aziz being outside of mainstream of the culture that he's desired to be a part of is part it 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 makes him better. Yeah. You know, and it makes his art better. I also love how beautiful the show is. Yeah. I, I was struck by the fact that they've cropped the frame to cinemascope dimensions, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, the dimensions of a Hollywood musical or an action mm-hmm. film, which automatically it's cheating, maybe, but it makes it feel even more cinematic than if it was just 16 by 9. Mm-hmm. And they really put a lot of thought into how they frame it and a lot of thought into how they move the camera. And there was one shot, I think it was in the pilot, of two characters having a conversation on the other side of a room and they zoom in. The whole scene is zooming in slowly, slowly, slowly with right. no cuts. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of a thing where, like, they don't have to do that. 
you know, it enhances the moment when they do that. But, I mean, the point I'm making here is the, the guy's an artist. Like, the people who make yeah. these shows are artists. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of the impact of the show for me. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. We'd like to thank Sam Dingman, Henry Malofsky, Sarah Abdurrahman, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Malika Rao. You can find me on Twitter at Malika underscore Rao. I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me at E underscore Alex Jung. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.